Romans chapter 10, as we continue on in our study of these three foundationally important chapters in the book of Romans. They are really the heart of Israelology, the study of Israel. And they are really the understanding of what the church needs to know concerning this special people, this peculiar people of the Lord. Having now celebrated the Lord's table, we are mindful of the cost of the righteousness that you and I who believe in Jesus Christ is. What is that cost? The cost was blood. This new covenant that Jesus promised, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, belongs to Israel. That is Israel's covenant. It was given to them in Jeremiah chapter 31, and it remains theirs today. And the blessings that we are enjoying today as believers, that we are about to celebrate in baptism, are all because God is faithful in keeping His promises when He has made them. Promises that will indeed, every one of them, be fulfilled. I challenged our youth Sunday school this morning, I challenged them to go through the Word of God and find the promises of God, whether they are seem significant or seem small. And notice how God fulfills them. Sometimes it's in a grand way. Sometimes it's in the everyday things of life. God fulfills His promises, but God always fulfills them. And God made a promise to Israel in the New Covenant. The New Covenant belongs to Israel. But as we begin to understand chapter 10, we come to this first portion of this chapter, having looked all the way through chapter 9 and seen some incredible truth that lies therein. And here we come to chapter 10. And the idea that I want us to focus on as we look at the heart of the Apostle is this. The heart of the Apostle Paul reveals righteousness only comes by grace in Christ. What I mean by that is there's a a movement today that says that the Israel came uh, through the law and we come through grace. That is not true. Paul says it's through grace that you are saved. And he reveals that it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, it is through grace that you are saved. And he reveals his heart in doing so. His heart for the people of Israel. As we begin this morning, having already enjoyed an incredible worship service with our communion, let's go to our Lord in prayer and worship Him in His Word. Father, we do thank You and praise You for the opportunity to spend some time investing our efforts and our energies to understand what Your Word says. As we consider the Apostle Paul, we are amazed at his heart's desire, considering the people who he has a burden for. But we are also amazed that we should have that same burden for the Jews themselves as well as for those who are around about us that do not know you as Savior. Lord, I pray that we'd be found faithful in having a heart to minister to those who do not know you as Savior. That that we would continue to have a heart to reach them not only for the gospel message, but to see them grow and develop in you. Lord, as we think about this passage, we are in some ways lightly chastened by Paul because we usually don't have that same burden that he does. I pray that our hearts would be on fire this morning, that we would possess the zeal of the Jews, but in the right direction, and that your name would be glorified in all that we do and say. Lord, bless our time in your word. Make it profitable for us and for your name's sake. Lord, we love you and thank you for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. This morning we begin a new chapter that God in His infinite sovereignty brought to us on this very special Sunday. It's amazing to me the way the Lord applies everything. It wasn't, it wasn't even planned a week ago to celebrate communion and baptism all on one Sunday. In fact, it was anticipated to do it this evening. But God brings them all together for a reason. 
And he brought it together for the fact that we are mindful of the new covenant this morning. Our remembrance of the new covenant is that the Lord will keep his promises. Absolutely guaranteed. For now, in this age, the people of Israel are still people who have rejected the Messiah. But Paul begins a new chapter by once again revealing that his heart's desire, and really it is unlike any other apostle that Paul speaks with the authority when it comes to this. And so Paul begins with his heart's desire. The apostle's heart. And then he moves on to Israel's zeal. Israel was a zealous people for the Lord. But it was misdirected, misguided. And finally, Paul boils it down to the fourth verse. Righteousness only comes through Christ. So righteous in Christ. So this morning, begin with me in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, where the scripture says this, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Here, as we begin to look at the apostle's heart, we must understand Paul's passion, Paul's desire, Paul's earnest prayer. As this new chapter begins, we return back to the heart of the apostle that we began to see in chapter 9. And in chapter 9, at the beginning, we saw an apostle whose heart was grieved for the sake of his kinsmen. The very same people who caused him to be shipwrecked. The very same people who stoned him, who persecuted him, who sent him off to Rome. Those are the people that Paul grieves for. Those are the people that says that Paul says they need to know the Lord. And so we saw his grief in chapter 9, but in chapter 10 we see his passion. Because Paul reveals what he is doing because of that grief. Now you and I may look at our world around us, and we may have tremendous grief. We look at our country and we say we have tremendous grief for those who don't know the Lord. We have a tremendous grief for the direction that our country heads at different times. We may say we have grief for those who all over the world, do not know Christ. And yet, do we take it to the next step? Because that's what Paul does. Paul in chapter 9 says, I have grief for Israel. But then he says in chapter chapter 10, and so because of my grief, I pray for their salvation. And all that I am doing is because I want to see them come to know Christ as Savior. Paul reveals that he is doing what he is doing and because of that grief, So that the eternal solution will come to them. And so Paul prays earnestly. He prays deeply. And the theme of the last chapter is that God is faithful according to His promises. Really, that's the the question that Paul has been asking. This rhetorical question that keeps coming up. Because at the end of chapter 8, he says, Nothing can separate us from the love of God. It says, For those who know the Lord and love Him, God is working all things together for them. For their good. How can that possibly be true if Israel has been rejected by God? And yet, all the way through chapter 9, Paul has been revealing that God is faithful to His promises. God is faithful. God is faithful. He is faithful with Israel. He is abundantly faithful as He deals with His people. And so the believer can have confidence in our salvation. And so that has been the theme that is really moving through these three chapters. But it is this faithfulness that is motivating Paul. It is the motivating force behind Paul's prayer. So when Paul prays, he knows that God will fulfill what he said he was going to fulfill. Have you ever prayed that kind of prayer? Where you know that you're praying exactly God's will. You don't know when. 
You don't know how it's going to be there, but you are praying exactly God's will. If you have never had that experience, I'm going to tell you as a believer, that is a joyful thing. Your prayer life will grow tremendously when you know you're praying for the Lord's will. And that's what Paul is doing. The motivating force behind Paul's prayer is that he knows that God is not done with Israel. He knows that God is going to continue to work in Israel. So Paul prays for Israel. He prays for Israel. Right to his dying breath, he is still seeking to reach them with the message of the Messiah. Not only does he pray, but he is proactive about it. He is out there sharing the gospel when he can. When he goes into a new community, who does he reach out to first? Always Israel. They always reject him. So he goes to the Gentiles, Paul being the apostle of the Gentiles, but he tries it with the Jews, hoping that today would be the day the Lord would answer his prayer. And so let's look maybe a little more here. We see his passion, we see his fervency. What about his prayer? Specifically, we recognize that Paul's prayer is for the salvation of the Jews. Now, no doubt Paul prayed for the salvation of Gentiles. No doubt Paul prayed for the salvation of his family and and so forth, but Paul's specific prayer was the salvation of the Jews. And Paul is very clear. There is only one way of salvation, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. There is only one way to be saved. Paul's earnest prayer is that the people of Israel will accept Christ for their salvation. That they'll stop looking to the law because they're looking to the law to produce righteousness, but that was never the intent of the law. And it's not going to do what it did not intend to do. There is more than a hint of expectancy, though, in Paul's passionate prayer. He knows the day is coming when the Jews will return to Christ. And he will do all he can for as long as he can to reach them to that goal. There are a few events that a believer can pray for with the expectancy seen here in Paul. Let me give you a few of them. We can pray for Christ's imminent return. We know he's about to return. We don't know when. We don't know at what time. But we know he's going to return. We can pray for the coming kingdom. We're not in the kingdom. It's to come. Jesus will one day sit down with those who know him as Savior. Many of them, most of them will be Jews. And you and I will be there as well who know the Lord in the Father's millennial kingdom. We will sit down and we will glorify the Lord at that time. So we can pray for the coming kingdom. We can pray for the salvation of the people of Israel. And I hope you do. I hope you pray for the salvation of the people of Israel. The church has oftentimes been abusive to the people of God. And yet we see Scripture God beautifully working out the details of His people. All of these are in the knowledge that very soon they will happen because all of them have been promised by God. And when you pray for a promise of God, you will see the answer. It will come. So let's now talk about, we see the the apostle's heart here. Let's look at Israel's zeal. Because you and I must understand something. When it comes to religion, we can be very zealous and very, very wrong. And that's what Israel was. Very, very zealous, but very, very wrong. And as we do so, we have to understand Paul's testimony. Look at verse 2. He says, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. If there was anyone who could testify concerning the zeal of Israel, it was the Apostle Paul. Here's a man who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, who chased down the Christians and persecuted them, hauled them back to Jerusalem so that they could be tried and convicted, some of them even stoned to death, as in Stephen's case. In fact, Saul, who is now Paul, was there holding the coats 
as they threw stones on Stephen, all because he was a Christian. If there was anybody who could testify of the passion, of the desire, of the zeal of Israel, it was Paul. And Paul says, I testify, I give witness, I bear witness concerning the truth that the people of Israel are very zealous for God. And you almost get the sense that Paul cringes as he has his mind full of his days as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. There's almost a sense where Paul goes, I could tell you that they're extremely zealous, but I could tell you that they're extremely lost. They're extremely passionate, but they're wrong. They're wrong. He no doubt remembers the zeal that he had for a strict following of the law as he assisted in the persecution of Stephen. As he assisted in the persecution of the followers of Christ. Paul no doubt clearly remembers Saul. He could never get Saul out of his mind. Because Saul made Paul. Saul the Pharisee is going... is. What Paul is referring back to, he goes, I know that they're passionate. I know they're zealous. And so, let's talk about this zeal. Israel's ambition. What is zeal? He says that they have a zeal for God. The word for zeal comes from the word that means to boil over. To erupt. To boil over the top. And this is contrasted by the church in Revelation chapter 3, uh, the church of Laodicea, which is said to be lukewarm. That's the opposite of zeal. So you have a church that is opposite of zealous, and you have the people of Israel who are extremely zealous for God. You have the two extremes, and neither one of them are right because their zeal is misplaced. We should have zeal, but we should have it in the right place. You see, Israel of Paul's day was zealous, boiling over in the pursuit of seeking to attain righteousness by a law that was never intended to give them righteousness. That's not what it was designed to do. And so, as we think about this picture, it may be helpful to understand or to think of a teenage young man and his ambitions. Because he's ready to go. He's on fire. But kind of like a raging bull in a china shop, he's a little out of control. There's not a whole lot of knowledge backing that up. So he's got all this zeal, all this passion, but it's going the wrong way. And so you've got to refine that and, and move it in the right direction. And the refining of that is knowledge. And Paul says they were extremely zealous for the Lord. They were on fire. They were like that teenage boy who's, let's go get it done. But they didn't have the knowledge. They didn't have the knowledge. And so what they did have was self-made righteousness. Self-made righteousness here in verse 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. You see, in their zealous pursuit, Israel lost sight of God's righteousness. In fact, keep your finger here and turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 through, verses 24 through 26. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, 24 through 26. And the scripture says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You see, in Israel's zeal, having lost sight of the righteousness of God, they replaced it with their own. They were zealous, yes. But they didn't remember that the law was a mere tutor to point them to Christ. 
They didn't remember that the law was just intended to reveal that they couldn't attain righteousness on their own. They didn't remember that the law was intended to reveal sin, not salvation. And so, because of that, they lost sight of the righteousness of God, and they replaced it with their own, and refused to be subject to the righteousness of the Lord. Instead of seeing the law as proof that they needed a Savior, they saw it as a means of salvation. And Paul has already dealt with that. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. It's, it's all over. That's not what the law was intended to do. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. Interestingly enough, this question popped into my mind. Did Israel have the reasonable belief that they could keep the law? Did Israel have the reasonable belief that they could keep the law? And since I'm the preacher and I want to follow this rabbit trail, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy 15. Because I love what the Lord does. This is uh, The book of Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. The people have wandered in the wilderness. They've heard the law the first time. Now they're preparing to go into the land. And you have a new breed of people. Uh, these are all brand new. No one over the age of 40 except for uh, Joshua and Caleb. Well, they're no one over the age of 60. Uh, all those who are over 20 have per- perished in the wilderness and so now you have a, a new group of people. And so the law is reiterated to them in Deuteronomy. That Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. And in Deuteronomy 15, the people are all excited about the Lord. They're, yes, we will obey you, Lord. We will follow you. And this is what God says. Deuteronomy 15, 4-5. through five. He says, However, there shall be no poor among you, since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess. If only you listen obediently to the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all that is commanded, which I am commanding you today. Okay, so Israel is in this position. There will never be a poor person in Israel if Israel will only listen. Look at verse 10. You shall generously give to him, generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your undertaking uh, on all your work and all your undertakings, verse 11, for the poor will never cease to be in the land. Wait a minute. In verses 4 and 5, God said, if you listen, you'll never have any poor. In the exact same conversation, God says, but the poor will never leave your land. You know what He was saying? You don't have the capacity to fulfill My law. Israel should have known clear back from the second giving of the law that they could not fulfill the law. The mere fact that they passed by a poor person in the street should have given the Pharisee the understanding that they did not pursue the righteousness of God. Every time they saw a poor person on the corner, they should have said, you know what? We're not doing our job. God promised in Deuteronomy that we'd never have a poor person in our land as long as we listened faithfully and obediently to His Word. But Israel did not. And so when they saw the poor people, they said, you must have sinned. You or your parents must have sinned. That must be your problem. So they passed it off onto them, not realizing that they were pursuing their own righteousness. But God informs Israel from the start that they will fail. From the very start of the law, He says, Israel, you can't do it. You can't keep it. You can't. And instead of seeing the blood from the sacrifice as pointing to the perfect Lamb of God, every time they slaughtered a lamb for their sins, slaughtered a bull, slaughtered a dove, Every time they slaughtered something for a, sal- or for a uh, sacrifice, 
Every time they should have been looking to the perfect Lamb of God, and they were not. Because they missed the point of the blood. But you and I, every time we celebrate communion, we see the cup, we recognize that it is a significant cup. Not because of what's in it, but because of what it stands for. It stands for the blood of Christ. And yet you and I do the same thing with that blood. We forget. We forget. And we somehow believe us to be self-righteous people because we observe communion. These people missed it. Because like a zealous young man, they failed to listen to the instruction. And so Paul comes to verse 4. Verse 4. He says, For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Oh, if there's greater words in all of Scripture for the Jews and for the Gentiles, they're very, very few. The end of the law. The word for end can mean one of two things. One is goal. It is the goal of the law. The other is the termination. The context would reveal that the word here is termination. Christ is the termination of the law. He is the end of the law. There is no more need or necessity of the law. From the promises made all the way back before the law to the garden, when God promised to send the seed who would crush the head of Satan, God has been systematically preparing for Christ to pave the way for man to be made righteous. You see, this supersedes the law. Christ was promised before the law. The law was just one of those promises. It wasn't the promise, it was just one of them, that a Messiah was going to come. And that He would fulfill the law. He would be the termination of the law. The law was not made to provide righteousness. The law has no power. It has been terminated. In fact, the Mosaic law, or the Mosaic covenant, is the only main covenant that was conditional. All the others were made by God. There were promises to be kept by God and God alone. But this covenant, in a covenant, you would have two parties. Both of them would agree to the conditions of the covenant. In Deuteronomy, Israel agrees to the condition of the covenant. says, yes, God, we will follow your law. And God says, no, you won't. Yes, we will follow your law. In Joshua, they come to the end of Joshua's time, and Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people said, yes, we will too. And then the book of Judges. (laughs) Joshua dies and Israel fails. So Israel has not kept up their end of the covenant. And when a covenant was made by both parties, if one party failed in their commitment to the covenant, then the covenant was null and void. The Mosaic covenant was made null and void by Israel's disobedience. The Mosaic covenant no longer has power. God upheld His word, but Israel did not. And so God sends Christ, not because that was what He had to do because of the law, but that's because of what He promised to do clear back in Genesis 3. The law was not made to provide righteousness. Christ is the termination of the law. He is the end of the law. But Paul says this, righteousness then cannot come from the law because the law has no power. So righteousness must come by grace. Righteousness by grace. The Jew looked for righteousness within their own means, thinking that they were following the law. Yet, they missed the simple truth that righteousness is provided by grace through Christ. No amount of striving after the law will succeed in providing righteousness. 
Every sacrifice from the time of the first sin until the time of the t- uh, that the law was terminated in Christ involved blood. Yet somehow, Israel, in the midst of all of their sacrifices, missed the sacrifice. Missed the sacrifice. The amazing thing to me is that the righteousness offered through Christ is given to everyone who believes. Because Israel missed it, salvation is offered to me, a Gentile. I don't have any Jewish blood in me as far as I know, and yet salvation is offered to me. Salvation is offered to you. All because Israel missed it. And yet, God told them that they would. You see, you are not some God saying, you know what, Israel's failed. I'm done with Israel. I'm going to follow now to the church because I think the church will do better than Israel. By the way, if you've looked at church history, we didn't do any better than Israel. In light of that, Paul says at the end of the next chapter, do not be arrogant. Gentiles, because just as easily as you, as the uh, native branch has been broke off and the grafted branch put in, it can be removed. One day very soon that's going to happen, where the Gentile time will be over, and it'll be the time of Jews again. When we hear the heart of the apostle, we see a man broken for his people, broken for Israel, broken for the very people who stoned him, who put him on a ship to be shipwrecked. Broken for a people who were going to persecute him, who abused and abandoned Paul. A man who earnestly prays for the promises of God to be fully completed. We will see more of this man in the days ahead, but when we consider the promises of God, we will see them played out in the events of Scripture. We will have and we should have the same confidence as Paul did in his prayer. Paul knew the end. Paul knew what was going to happen. Paul was praying to celebrate the Lord's table with the Lord once again. But this time, the time of the Jews, the time of Israel's millennial kingdom, one day Israel will see the answer to Paul's prayer. It's not going to be easy getting there. We call that preparation time the tribulation. It's going to take seven years for Israel to turn their heart from where it is now to the time where they'll turn it to Christ. Seven years of terrible events on this earth. But the tribulation is real. Do you know why? The people of Israel have to turn their hearts. And Paul says, that's what I'm praying for. That's what I'm praying for. I know what's going to happen because God promised it. In the meantime, we celebrate the righteousness that we Gentiles enjoy in Christ because all who believe, Jew or Gentile, can receive salvation and stand right before our God. And Paul says, I know it. And Gentiles, brethren, you know it. Let's pray for the Jews. That they will know it too very soon. Let's close in a word of prayer. And then we will move on to the last portion of our worship service this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you. That we serve a God who is faithful. Who will keep every single promise that was ever made. Lord, we recognize that the people of Israel have rejected you. And they continue to live in that rejection today in the midst of enemies on every side, including, unfortunately, us in many ways. Lord, I pray that as Christians today, we would have the firm boldness to pray for the salvation of Israel, knowing that when that prayer is fulfilled, 
when that prayer is answered, the tribulation will be here. And then comes the millennial period. Lord, we pray with the confidence that Paul prayed. We have an earnest desire to see the people of Israel saved. And until that day, we have an earnest desire to see the people of all nations saved. And I pray that we would share with bold compassion and passion the gospel message of Jesus Christ in the same earnestness that Paul did, knowing that the days are indeed short and your promises will be fulfilled. Knowing that truth gives us the surety that we need to confess that you are indeed God and to confess with our mouth that you are our Savior. Lord, I pray that if there are any today who do not know you as Savior, that today will be the day of salvation for them. But as we prepare to remember not only your death on the cross, we also prepare to remember your resurrection from the grave. And as we do so, we praise you for this unique privilege opportunity that we have to celebrate today. Lord, we love you and thank you for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen.